0: Well, good morning again. Glad you're here. Uh, 2019. Happy New Year to all of you. Uh, as uh, we celebrated a couple days ago, uh, I really am glad each of you are here. Decided to be with us this Sunday. And if you're a first-time guest, we really want you to feel welcome. I help others that are part of our church will uh, extend welcome to you. Uh, please connect in ways that you might have questions at the connect table. Ask us personally questions. Email us. We'd love to connect with you. Uh, if if you're wanting that 2019, we decided this year, what better way to launch into the new year than with a study in the book of a Bible that it's, uh, the, the Bible that is filled with scandal and violence, a book of the Bible that is puzzling and appears to be primitive. Uh, the book of Judges, which is what we're going to look at for the next 10 weeks or so is filled with some strange stories uh, from beginning to end. Uh, from beginning to end, things go from bad to worse, right? So, happy 2019, Christ Central. Uh, we're going to jump into Judges. Uh, it, it really can seem strange uh, as we d- dive into it. It's so strange that many people skip over it when they're reading it. Many preachers will will skip over it when they're preaching it. Many children's Bibles have no accounts from the book of Judges. It is a book Uh, where things just spiral downward, and it it seems like chaos ensues. And and so maybe you're like, wouldn't it be better to start 2019, like, jumping into the Gospel of John? Let's just meditate on some stories of Jesus, uh, why the book of Judges. I'm excited about this series, and I love what Del Ralph Davis said about Judges. He said, only people who take tranquilizers before sitting down can doze off while they read it." it. There's a lot going on, and and keeping a congregation awake during a sermon is not the primary goal of a preacher. It's nice when it happens, but it sure helps when the text of Scripture is so alive and different, and I will say extremely relevant, that it grabs our attention. Tim Keller says that Judges is the best place to go in the whole Old Testament to understand spiritual renewal and revival in the church. Judges is one of the best places for us to dive into if we want to understand how to live as faithful Christians in our current culture and society. Let me give you a little bit of context for the book of Judges. It was written about 3,000 years ago, uh, around the 13th century B.C. It recounts the history of the nation of Israel from the, the time of the death of Joshua, its leader, to the time of having its first kings. Now, up until the time of Judges, God, through Moses, has set Israel free from bondage and slavery in Egypt. He's led them through the wilderness and through Joshua. They, they have now finally arrived in Canaan, the promised land. And they are to settle in the land and enjoy God's blessing and God's rest. Now, the promised land, Canaan, is a society and a culture intermingled with many nations. It was a mixture of people who believed in Yahweh, believed in God, and some who didn't. Some mixed their beliefs, some believed in the gods of Baal and Ashtaroth. It it was a pluralistic society, meaning everybody could believe what they wanted to believe. Mixing beliefs, adding to beliefs, subtracting from beliefs. And what happened for Israel as they entered this pluralistic society and culture of Canaan is that they were faced, God's people were faced with the daily choice of living faithfully to god or following the spirit of the age at the end of the book of judges repeats this phrase everyone did what was right in their own eye everyone did what was right in his or her own eye that was the culture of canaan and we will see israel soon adopts this mantra do what is right in your eye i don't think there's a better mantra that characterizes our current day and the spirit of our age, then everyone should do what is right in their own eye. The book of Judges is gonna be extremely applicable for us. It's a great book for us to understand how to live faithfully and trust God in our world. And it's a great book to understand who God is. The book of Judges has 12 judges. That's what it's named for. Judges weren't courtroom judges, judiciary making judgments kind of judges. The judges were deliverers. There were saviors, those who got God raised up to deliver his people. And the major theme of this book is that there is one judge, one great savior. He is the Lord over his people, even in the midst of what can feel like chaos. And so I want us to jump in, and we're going to look at chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2. I've picked a few portions to read from. Uh, As as is our custom, I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able. And I'm going to read. You can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen. Behind me, as I read God's word to us this morning, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Edonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Edonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Edonai Bezek said, "70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me." And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Verse 19, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh in its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor in its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam in its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo in its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Chapter two. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Pray with me. God, we come and ask that you would deliver us this morning. Uh, that you would uh, cause the Spirit of God to communicate your truth and beauty to our spirit, that our minds would be enlightened, our hearts inflamed, and our willingness to walk in your truth strengthened. Would you remove me, the preachers, that Christ and Christ alone is exalted? In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, it's. 2019, as we all know, I still want to write 2018, but it takes me about a month to realize it's 2019 when I'm writing the date. And I wonder, what are some of the the things that you've thought about doing different in this new year than last year? Now, I've got to be honest, I'm not a big resolutions guy when it comes to the new year. I have goals. I have things that I want to accomplish that I'll write down and think about 2019 for. But but a resolution to resolve to do something, it it feels... breakable to me, uh, and let's just be honest, we all break our resolutions, right? I saw someone on, on Facebook on January 2nd posted, I messed up already, 2020 is going to be my year for sure, right? Breaking our resolutions, it, it happens, but breaking a resolution, it's not one quick decision, right? It's, it's slow, small decisions over time that leads to ultimately giving up on the larger resolutions. Take, for instance, I I resolve to wake up at 6 a.m. and and exercise four times a week, right, if that were to be my resolution. I never could do that. I'm not a morning workout kind of a person. Uh, I I work out in the afternoons, uh, so I would break it like day one. But if if this is your resolution, 6 a.m., four times a week, I'm going to exercise. You don't chuck that resolution in one decision. Instead, one morning comes, and it's dark outside, and it's cold, and your bed just kind of says, stay in, sleep in me. You can stay here. And you're like, okay, I'm going to stick to my resolution, but just this once, just this once, I'm not going to get up. I'm going to sleep in. The next week comes, and you're like, stay in bed. You're like, okay, I'm going to exercise three times a week, not four. Right? My, I resolve now three times and you stay up late one night and you're worn out the next day or you feel soreness from the workout before and then it's two times a week, right? You get my point. Compromising commitments, it's not one fell swoop. More often, it's small, gradual, minor decisions to cave just a little that ultimately leads to breaking the larger commitment. Anybody that's experienced a great moral crisis would, would say this is true. Anybody that's gone through an adultery or has gone through addiction or stealing or you name it, will say that it's a process that leads to this major moral breakdown. It's many, many decisions. Many M-A-N-Y, many M-I-N-I decisions. Many, many decisions to compromise over time that leads to the big compromise of unfaithfulness. Israel have experienced the exodus. They've been set free from slavery. They've been led into the promised land. They're to settle in this land, experience the blessing and the rest of God, and they are to remain faithful to him. But every day in Canaan is a day of facing the choice of fidelity to the God who has redeemed them or to follow the spirit of the age, the persuasive winds and voices of the culture. If you're a Christian, God has redeemed you. From slavery to sin, bondage to sin, in Jesus Christ, we are set free from the penalty of death, the power of sin, and one day, someday, the presence of sin. We have experienced a new exodus, and we are called to settle into the places that God has put us, our cities, our vocations, our callings, and we are to be faithful to him. But every day here in the triangle, in the places God has put us, we face the choice, Fidelity to the God who has redeemed us or to be swayed and follow the gods of our culture. Not Baal and Ashtaroth, but more like gods like control and money and power and success and acceptance and self-image and the perfect family or the perfect home or influence or politics. Israel compromises their faith in God. We too can find ourselves compromising our faith. Now, before I jump into compromising faith, I think as we start this series in Judges, there are two glaring major things that I have to address uh, that I I think will help us in the entirety of our series in Judges. And the first thing that I have to address is what's up with this conquest of Canaan? Now, what's going on here? This feels like a moral problem, many have said. Is God a moral monster where he's calling Israel to butcher Canaan? Is this uh, ethnic cleansing, some type of genocide that God has uh, called his people to? And the Canaanites can feel like victims for us. Uh, And it makes understanding this difficult, and it is difficult in many ways. And it's okay for us to say that. But just because we can't fully comprehend Everything in the scriptures doesn't mean we should discount the scriptures. We should seek to understand what God is communicating and what's happening. And I think Deuteronomy helps us understand what God is up to here in Judges. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 to 6, this is what God calls Israel to when, when He's calling them to possess Canaan. Listen to these words God says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Where it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness, the uprightness of your heart, are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the, wor- the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness for you are a stubborn people. A few things that we see in Deuteronomy. The first is that the Israelites are no better than the Canaanites. They are not righteous in and of themselves. It is sheer grace that God is leading them in providing the promised land. And the second thing is that the Canaanites are not innocent. They are a wicked people. The Canaanites were wicked. They were into sorcery and divination. They raped women brutally raping women. They offered their children as burnt offerings into open flames of fire to their gods. They, they were horrible people. And so I know we, we have compassion for the victim, but I also know in every one of your hearts and my hearts is a cry for justice when we see atrocities. And what God is doing is that he's using Israel as his instrument, as his hammer of justice against the Canaanites. You see, even Adonai Bezek knew this. Verse 7, he said, As I have done, so God has repaid me. So this is a matter of justice, which is at the heart of God. The ultimate purpose of, uh, of driving the Canaanites out for Israel is not vengeful, it's not economic gain, it's spiritual. Israel's to dwell in this land in communion with their God and hold fast and serve him. The second thing that I'll quickly address for us to understand judges, and this is actually a major biblical interpretation key to to understand the whole Old Testament. It's this, that God's people in much of the Old Testament were a theocratic nation. God's people was the nation of Israel. Today, God's people are not a nation. The United States of America is not God's country. God's people are the church which consists of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so when we read Israel, we read church. We don't read Israel and then read the United States of America or some other country. We read the church. So let me jump into our passage. Here we have Israel and the tribes of Israel with this call from God. Go into Canaan and drive out the inhabitants. And what we see from the get-go, and we'll see through the whole book, is that they compromise their faith. They're making many, many decisions and large decisions ultimately to disobey and not follow God. So I want to ask one question this morning. What leads us to compromise our faith? What leads us to compromise our faith? We're going to look at three things quickly. The first thing that I want to point out is fear. Fear, we see this in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, after the death of Joshua... The people of israel inquired of the lord joshua was an incredible leader faithful strategic bold courageous and now israel loses their leader and they're thinking what are we going to do the death or loss of a great leader is always cause of concern be it a parent the founder of a company the pastor of a church it leads people to wonder okay what now Who's going to lead us? What's going to happen? And and for Israel, what God is teaching them is that he's their great leader. He is the one that they should look to and trust. God used Joshua, but God was leading, not Joshua. And they could either trust God or in loss of their leader, respond in fear. And they respond in fear because Judah is the first tribe that's to go up and fight against the Canaanites. In verse three, it says that Judah says to Simeon, his brother, hey, will you come with me? <laughs> come with me. But Judah's called by God to go alone. But he makes the decision to ask his brother to come with him. A small infraction, but a step of, be- of disobedience nonetheless. And then all of chapter one is this listing of tribes who are driving out the inhabitants of Canaan in Bezek and Debir and Hebron. And it seems like it's mostly encouraging But then we come to verse 19, which I read, and and Judah, it says that Judah could not drive out the inhabitants because they had iron chariots. They had iron chariots. They, They saw the might and the strength of Canaan, that they had military weapons that they did not possess, and so they made a decision to disobey, and they shrunk back in fear. You see, fear flows out of a loss of control loss of control we're unsure of what's going to happen we're unsure of the future we're unsure of how people will respond and control can be an elusive god we can think we have control because we oftentimes possess resources or have options uh, but but it's elusive see we we uh we we think we can control but then when we really are honest we go we can't control the future I cannot control my children as much as I try. I can't control how other people respond to me. I I can't control the stock market. I can't control if the grad school or the residency program offers me a spot. I can't control when I get married or when I have children. We try, but man, it's elusive. And we actually think we have control when things are working out in the ways we want them to work out. But when we realize we're out of control, fear strikes. And it can lead us to either tighten our grip and manage our lives or shrink back. We can tighten the grip and manage our lives. We we can save and build our retirement retirement account aggressively. We can become intensive parents. Heard that terminology? Where we make sure our children have exposure to everything by the age of 6. Right? They are in music lessons and they are taking a second language and they're playing every sport and they get the best education. We can work really hard for people to like us. I'm afraid of rejection. So man, I, I will do whatever I can for my boss to like me, my coworkers to like me, my classmates to like me, managing our lives. Or we can shrink back in fear and play it safe. We don't step out when God calls us to step out. When God says, share the good news of Jesus, we we wonder, what are, what are people going to think about me when I say this? When God says we're to break down barriers of race and class, we wonder how that's going to feel and, and, and what people will think about us. And so we, we stay with people that look like us and think like us. When God says go, we're like, no, 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 we're going to stay. We're afraid. Fear is one of the things that leads us to compromise. The second thing that I think we see from this is, is that convenience leads to compromise. You looked in verses 27 to 28, the tribe of Manasseh, they don't drive out the inhabitants, but instead they grow, grow strong enough, they've got a military presence strong enough to put the Canaanites to forced labor. And so for them, it's easier to enslave the Canaanites than to drive them out. Convenience trumped obedience. Convenience trumped obedience. Uh, growing up, I, I had chores every weekend. Uh, that, I to, uh, that I was, my parents made sure I did. I was to cut the grass, I was to dust all the furniture in our, in our house, and I was to vacuum the carpet. Those were my main three chores. I didn't mind cutting the grass or vacuuming. Uh, those actually gave me gratification. They still do, like seeing a freshly cut lawn and lines in the carpet, like there's something weird, I know, but I love it. It's gratifying for me. Dusting, man, I hated dusting. To do it the way my parents wanted me to do it, I had to remove everything off its piece of furniture, dust it, and then put everything back in its proper place. And it, it was tempting for me just to dust around, right, and not have to remove everything and place it back. So many times we are tempted to dust around, to do the easy thing, the convenient thing. But faithfulness to God is not always easy. So the God of comfort beckons us here. The God of comfort, it, 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 we want a nice, protected, non-turbulent, predictable life. We want comfort. We want ease. And, and so instead of speaking truth to a friend or a family member, uh, we'd rather it be comfortable because we know that's going to cause ripple effects in, in, in the relationship. It's going to create uh, an kind of off of the equilibrium. Uh, we don't want to disagree with a coworker about a justice or equity decision at work because it might create tension. We don't want our children exposed to certain things, right? So we create as much as we can a protected, nice, comfortable environment for them. We don't want to step out in new ways. It's just easier for us to stay doing the same things with our old rhythms. It's just comfortable. See, convenience can lead us to compromise. The last thing that we see that leads to compromise is pragmatism. It's a little different than convenience. Many of the tribes, Manasseh, Zebulon, and Naphtali, they all do not, do not drive out the Canaanites, but force them into labor. They're forcing the Canaanites into slave labor. This made a ton of economic sense. Instead of driving them out, they could rule over them and profit from their labor. What seemed like common sense and even mark of military success was actually a spiritual failure in the eyes of God. Pragmatism is driven by the God of success. We want to we win. We want to climb the ladder. We want to achieve and succeed. And in order to do so, we'll make decisions that seem like common sense in our world, but it's not the call of God for us. See so what works and causes success in this world is sometimes failure in God's eyes. Let me put it another way. What is success in God's eyes sometimes looks like nonsense in our society. I attended a, a Journey of Generosity weekend. It's a weekend uh, that teaches uh, a culture and a heart of generosity and giving. Uh, Erica and Sam Quell afforded me and Rachel to go on this uh, a few years back, and it was an encouraging weekend, and there were stories after stories of, of generosity, of God calling people into Uh, significant steps of generosity, and there was a man named Alan who owned his own business worth millions and millions of dollars, and God called Alan to give his whole company away, right? All the profits to to give it away. That makes no sense, and the world looks at that and says, you're crazy. That's losing, and God looks at that and says, that's winning in his kingdom. Just because things work and make sense in our society doesn't mean they please God. We can have marks of success but spiritually fail. So we've got fear, we've got convenience, pragmatism, driven by the gods of comfort and control and success. Where are you compromising? Where are we compromising? Verse 2 of chapter 2, God says, you've not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my voice, and God is saying it wasn't that you could not obey my voice. It's that you would not obey my voice. You had the ability, but you were unwilling. You had the ability, but you were unwilling. And I think that it is worth every single one of us, me included, to ask this question, where am I saying I can't, but God is saying you won't? This thing with compromise or unfaithfulness is that it's rooted in, in a belief problem. We see that in our text Israel they've forgotten who God is. They've forgotten who God is and so so God sends an angel to them. Chapter 2 verse 1, an angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal, this messenger of God comes to Israel to share God's word to them. And where he comes from is important. This angel comes from Gilgal. We see Gilgal in Joshua chapter 5 verse 9. It's the camp that Israel is resting in and God comes and says to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore call this place Gilgal. See, Gilgal was a place that God reminded them of their exodus, their redemption from slavery in Egypt. And then right after that in Joshua chapter six, Israel goes up against Jericho, this mighty city with large walls and they march around it and they pray and then they blow trumpets And the walls come tumbling down. And God delivers Jericho. Israel has forgotten who their God is. That he is the great leader, the great redeemer. He is the judge and deliverer of his people. They are his redeemed and loved people. It's in their amnesia that they compromise. Hear me, we're no better than Israel. I'm no better than Israel. Many, many decisions. We can make that lead to unfaithfulness. Perhaps you've compromised your faith in big ways. Israel does that too. We'll see it. We've got to remember, Jesus who faced the power of sin and death and willingly gave his life on the cross to defeat and fight back our enemy is the Redeemer who sets us free and is leading us to the promised land. And in Christ, we are secured as sons and daughters. Second Timothy, the New Testament, God says, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. By faith in Christ, we are in Jesus. Even when we're faithless, God looks and sees us in Christ. He cannot deny himself. He remains faithful to us. It's an older 2006 movie called Blood Diamond. Any of you seen it? It's about a diamond conflict and war-torn Sierra Leone. And it's also about a father's effort to rescue his son. The son's name is Dia. Uh, He's been kidnapped and forced into child labor uh, and uh, becomes actually a child soldier. He's drugged, he's made to witness horrible things, and Dia forgets who he is. Solomon, his father, searches and searches for him and, and at last finds him in a rebel camp. And Solomon sneaks into him, and Dia doesn't even recognize him. Instead, he stares at him, and then he points his AK-47 at his father. And it's this intense moment. Is he going to kill his dad? And it's at that point that Solomon says, Dia, what are you doing? Dia, look at me. Look at me. What are you doing? You are Dia Vindi of the proud Mindy tribe. You're a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Inyada and the new baby. The cow waits for you and Babu the wild dog who minds no one but you. I know they made you do bad things, but you're not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you, and you will come home with me and be my son again. Hear me, church. God is our father who loves us. Even in our compromising, he calls us to come back to him. As Solomon said, that we must go home and we must remember that we are God's children. We must remember Jesus and what he has done and is doing. There is no greater judge. There is no greater deliverer, no one more faithful than Jesus. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? For remembering and trusting Jesus will lead us to do what is right in God's eye, not in our own eye. For we know there's no better place to be than in fellowship and communion with our God. So remember, he's for us, he's with us, and he fights for us. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us to remember this morning Maybe we need to know for the first time, or maybe we just need to have our minds illumined and hearts inflamed yet again. Wherever we are this morning, I pray that we would see Christ. We'd see your deliverance. We'd see your redemption. Our, and we would well up with great joy in the salvation that we have. May we, may we know that we're yours, that we're your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.